Welcome to Beyond the Balance Sheet, the podcast that helps advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families understand the complexities of issues related to our mental, physical, and emotional well-being. Our co-hosts, Arden O'Connor and Diana Clark, will interview a series of guests on a range of topics, providing informative content and practical tools for professionals and families to consider. Here are your hosts, Arden and Diana. Hi, and welcome to an episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. Our guest today is David Korb, and he is the founder of Commonwealth Student Services of Boston. So, David, tell us a little bit about the endeavor of institutional education guidance in Boston, Massachusetts. Well, thank you, Diana. As a quick background, I worked prime, I started my career about seven or eight years ago in educational consulting, focusing more on international students coming to the United States for both boarding school and college. And over the th- more recent years, especially with COVID, I've shifted a lot more, covering a lot more uh, domestic families and even some families right here in the Boston area. So I've had a really interesting lens of how these schools function and how the kids are actually interacting both amongst themselves with faculty and sort of as we think about what true success is. Does the pandemic really shifted the culture at these boarding schools? So it has been a huge shift. In the day schools, we've seen a lot of applicants, but on the actual daily basis of going to school, I don't think there's been a huge, huge shift in terms of um, maybe the mission of the school or things like that, but obviously the way they deliver content has shifted very significantly with cohorting, masking, a large virtual component, et cetera. But I think the largest changes have come on the boarding school end. And that's where kids are really fortunate to be back in school and they're very grateful and enjoying that. But certainly it was a very hard um, adjustment. In the first couple of weeks, certainly kids faced up to 14 days of quarantine. Sometimes the quarantine was really strict where they actually were only leaving their rooms to use the bathroom or get food um, if it actually wasn't delivered to them. There was even very minimal outdoor time, even if it was alone in mass. So I think kids had a very difficult time adjusting at beginning, uh, especially new students. So you're dealing with a lot of kids coming from international areas. They must have felt incredibly isolated during that quarantine. I think that's exactly right. And, and a good number of the students I work with, unfortunately, were not able to make it. Um, so if they were a new student and had been, especially in China or other countries, they in fact just didn't get here in the fall, although they some got here later. Um, I had a few students who actually didn't go back last March um, and just stayed in the country with friends or family or however they could stay here in the hopes that they would be able to get, you know, if they stayed here, then they could go to campus um, late August, September, which they did. And so for those kids, it's been a really long time. They haven't been home in over a year. Um, and granted, it's been an overall a good experience in the fact that they've been able to study in person during COVID. But on the other hand, it's been a, a pretty isolating experience being so far from home. I can only imagine, David. And I, I guess I'm curious, you know, both pre-COVID and post-COVID, how do you see issues around mental and physical health impacting these students? So I'd say in terms of overall trends pre-COVID, um, there's certainly a lot of complaints, student complaints about uh, anxiety and bullying. Um, and the question that always comes to my mind is how true is this? And then how much of it is just sort of feeding off of itself? Um, and they're both interrelated in a sense, but it is certainly true that anxiety is, is something that schools are just grappling with. They don't really 
I, I think they know how to handle it in certain ways, but they're afraid to. Um, so for certain boarding schools, for example, technology, in my opinion, is one of the real driving concerns of anxiety. Students are just addicted to their phones, the constant um, need to check their phones, being in these constant group texts. I think TikTok, uh, Instagram, the way that they view each other, it's all unfortunately uh, something that started as a way to bring together, I think, and ends up dividing them in a lot of ways. And so I think that puts just naturally a lot of anxiety on kids. They have a lot of trouble, a lot of trouble putting the phone down and just breaking away. Um, and I think that that's just a generational thing. And you'd hope at boarding schools would be better because you're all together. You're living with your hopefully your good friends 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But the reality is, I think it's just as hard for them, if not harder. Um, I will say that. Uh, a few of the junior boarding schools, these are schools that have boarding at younger grades, fifth through ninth grade, have very strict tech policies where there's actually a tech lock box and these devices are put away at eight or nine or 10 at night and not brought out until the morning. And granted, the kids are younger, they're smaller schools, they tend to be more nurturing, but I do think that those kids have fewer issues as a result of, of policy. Makes and then in sense. terms of just COVID, as I mentioned before, I think it's a challenge. Um, the good flip side is that there's probably been less substance abuse and sort of risky behavior. Um, substances because kids are, don't go off campus, they don't have access to it. And even if they do, they're probably not living with their best friend or maybe the group of kids that they might engage in, in that behavior with. So uh, that's probably the only silver lining to this, but I think it has been isolating for a lot of kids. So when you think about supporting these kids who are in boarding schools, and some of them are very, very young, what are the strategies you use or goals you have when we're trying to support people on campus? So I actually started this as an educational consultant, but we started more with the idea of actually supporting as a concierge service international students who are studying here. So I always began with a lens of thinking, boy, these kids are doing so much. They're coming four, five, six thousand miles away. They're studying in a different language, totally different culture. Um, and so as we started our business, I realized that that was a really important need. And so as I shifted to more consulting and less concierge work, I've always kept that concierge background in my mind. Like, how can we help these kids? Just getting them to the right school is it's the start, but it, it's probably not enough. And so how do you actually check in with a 14 to 18 year old or even younger um, without nagging them, knowing that you're truly trying to help them? And I think uh, succumbing in a sense, maybe succumbing is not the right word, but going to their level, which is a text, is, is the most important way. Getting to communicate in a way that they want to and when they want to uh, is really important. So it means checking in at night, certainly not first thing in the morning, um, and just texting. And hopefully that can open up to a, a phone call or something else if they need it. But a lot of this, I think, can just be a quick handhold or check in that way. And these small check-ins, I think, can actually kind of get kids out of ruts a little bit. Um, it's really easy to fall into, into a rut in boarding school. I think one thing I wanted to mention, so maybe we'll just do it now, is it, there's a phenomenon, sort of the January blues. So all the kids go away. For Christmas tip, or the winter break, typically they have pretty nice and, and somewhat exotic vacations, traveling, and then they all come back to school. And illness now, fortunately, isn't an issue due to COVID um, with the masking and this. But typically in years past, kids come back, they all bring colds and flu from all over the world. Everybody's together. Within a couple of weeks, the campus is sick and it gets dark at 4 p.m., 
life is sort of tiring. It's really cold if you're in northern New England. How much more do we have to go until mid-March break? A long time. And so I think that that's a really important time to connect with students and just make sure they're navigating that time well. Gosh, I can relate, I think, to two things that you said. Well, one is certainly the long winters and just the lack of um, concept of time for younger people where it just feels, you know, feels like it's endless. You know, adults often are wishing time went slower, but I remember at that age feeling like, gosh, we just got through the the holidays and it feels like I'm not going to get another break for quite some time. But the the second piece that I think is really interesting that you've mentioned is this idea of shorter interventions. I think so many times as adults, we're looking to have that serious conversation and to talk with somebody we know who's struggling, who might be on the younger side and sit down and, and do it in the way we would with another adult over a cup of coffee for an hour. And most young people in my experience are used to a much faster paced world and having sort of short, sweet discussions where it's focused and they don't feel like they're trapped into some long lecture um, make a big difference. You know, I, I want to switch I'm laughing, Arden, because you're exactly right. I mean, when they have to sit down and do an essay with me or something, I think they're like, oh God, we got to do an hour. But if you just send them a check in like, you know, a text, hey, how you doing? Or how was practice today? Thumbs up, good, great, or not really. Maybe you just let it go, even if it's a not really or it wasn't great. And then later on, you give them another check-in or maybe it's the next day. But I think doing exactly what you said is so key, not making this like, well, we'll sit down and we'll discuss it for a good hour because that's not what they want to do. No, you're exactly right. I used to work with foster care kids and I used to, and there were males between 15 and 22 years old. And I used to say the quickest way to get them talking is to take them for a drive somewhere because they don't have to make eye contact. They feel like they're doing something productive. And, you know, even if it was just for 20 minutes, something would come out that was important versus if I said, come into my office and let's sit and have a real discussion. You know, it was much harder to make progress because they, they could see the, you know, finger wagging coming. Um, but I want to, I want to switch the conversation around a little on an interesting topic, um, especially in the times that we're living. So, you know, what is it like, you know, the social scene on these campuses? I'm thinking about the dynamic between those families that might be representative of the people that listen to this podcast, you know, family, you know, individuals coming from high net worth families versus, you know, the diversity piece with other candidates and other students on campuses that are on financial assistance. So like, how does all that work from your perspective on a social level? So it's a, it's a great question and, and one that's certainly challenging. Um, as a big picture, I think it's a little bit hard to generalize um, across you know 100 New England boarding schools because they are all so different. Certain schools have a much more moneyed culture, I'd say. And at those schools, uh, there's a, a, a quite a big divide, I'd say. And ironically, well, because they have so much money, they may be able to give more financial aid. So I do think you end up seeing a lot more of sort of the haves and then a certain group of the have-nots. And at those schools, unfortunately, a lot of the kids' political capital is who they are, where they live, where they go in the summer, where their vacations. As I mentioned, they come back from these Christmas vacations, and they're all talking about you know how great it was being in whatever exotic Stod. island. Stod. So that, exactly, or skiing. So that is certainly, um, it's, it's a presence on campus. And I think as families think about boarding school, one of the most important things to me is what's the culture? Who are my kids going to be surrounded by and who is going to be teaching them? And who's really going to be there from 8 p.m. to 6.30 or 7 a.m.? Because all the schools are going to offer pretty good, if not excellent, 
academics um, with a variety of ranges, but they're all going to have relatively small classes and pretty engaging teachers. The question to me is, what's the culture of the school? And so you'll also find some of the smaller schools tend to have a little bit less divide. Um, and you can also find, this is a stereotype, but the closer you are to New York, the kids can be a little bit faster and slicker. And the farther we go, that could be less. But again, that's a generalization. Um, but it's certainly something that kids need to figure out in which group are they going to be in. Kids, like adults, click together. So is it the lacrosse, you know, the Laxboros together? Are the, the cool girls together? Are it the international kids? Within the international kids, it's generally the Chinese kids are together, whether they like it or not. And then other groups certainly mix. But I, I'd say that there, there's quite a bit of segregation amongst the, 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 the student body. And I always tell families, when you go to the schools and, you, and you, if you do get to see a lunch, you can see how kids group together. And there's only a few schools left that have uh, sit-down lunches where you have assigned tables that are rotated. But those are just great for mixing kids up and, and sort of trying to try to get over some of the clickiness. That's a great idea. I know that back in the day, and I'm going to date myself, Miss Porter's had assigned seating at lunch. Almost all the schools did, and the junior boarding schools still do, uh, almost at all their meals, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. But the majority of boarding schools have gotten away from it. They might say, well, we have an advisor dinner or this. But that, again, an advisor dinner is still a, a group of kids who you already know. They're all advisees. So you don't really get the mixing of kids. And I think that that can really help, that if you have to sit at a group with a group of, you know, 9 through 12, it, it just it, it's a different environment. So you mentioned that bullying is another one of the issues that you hear. Mm -hmm. And does money or affluence shape that experience? Or are there other factors that you're hearing? Um, you know, that's a great question. I think it's probably more along the lines of who the people are. Um, I don't want to say it's, you know, the person's Asian, so they're immediately bullied or because it doesn't have to be race. I think it could also be, are they a cool kid? Are they a good athlete? Who's picking on them? Can they get away with it? So money probably factors into all of that because it's a complicated issue. But I'm not sure it's, it's quite that easy. Um, I do think it definitely breaks down amongst who are the cool kids on capital and what kind of social capital they have. God, it makes my stomach hurt just thinking about being back in those years. And, and I think it, it is definitely real. There is definitely bullying. But the world is as bad as it might seem. I think the world is a much kinder place. And I think that schools that used to have pretty tough reputations, they are much nicer than they used to be. There's just so much more awareness of this. And that's why I, I wonder how much of it is worse or is it the same or is it even better than it is? And I think it's actually better, although kids talk about it more. Um, and that's not to say that there aren't kids suffering. There certainly are. But I think that the fact that they're so open about it does show that there is progress being made. And there are a lot of resources on campus. So campuses have student health centers. They have mental health. Uh, pe people just dedicated to me mental health. Um, you have your advisor. You have teachers. You have a coach. Hopefully there's a lot of different spaces for them to, or people to reach out to. And, and I incorrectly use the word space because unfortunately I think certain schools have created these quote safe spaces for kids to go and in theory it's a great idea you can go and you feel like no one's going to judge you and it, it's a good place to get away and share your grievance the reality is I think kids you know if you're a school of 300 kids it's, it's hard to imagine you really need to create all these safe spaces if all of the faculty are really engaged and, and, and kids feel like they can speak to a number of people so I almost worry that sometimes it's a, it's a sign that there are more problems or that it's actually drawing a dividing line. 
and that's just a bigger problem in society. I feel like, unfortunately, you know, we have a lot of division in society and boarding school could be a great chance to bring everyone together in a cohesive, we're in it together. This is our team as a team as a whole school, not as a particular team. Um, but unfortunately, you know, kids are kids. It's a tough age and, and there are certainly a lot of divisions. I think it's a great point. And I do think, um, you know, one of the things I'm thinking about is I watch that series, 13 Reasons Why. And I think like many viewers, you know, it's just disturbing as an older adult to see. And that wasn't about a boarding school. It was just about a, you know, a high school in an affluent area. But it's it was certainly for me, it, it wasn't representative of my high school experience. And it's disturbing to see what kids are exposed to. And at the same time, I think the benefit is that you have on something like Netflix, you know, a conversation through this documentary or not documentary series through this fictional series that is bringing to light issues around, you know, bullying and sexuality and, um, and drinking and substance use and depression and all these issues that, you know, I don't remember any equivalent series, um, or show being present when I was in my junior high school and high school years. I think the closest thing was Beverly Hills 90210, which was, I was a huge fan of and does tackle actually, it was, you know, does tackle some of these issues, but not quite in the same, um, same level or of kind of ed with the same level of education with the same level of sort of forced messaging um that some of the more modern series do so i think i think the benefit is that you know we're growing up in an era where there's just much more um discussion publicly about you know why bullying is important to prevent and and i think it's a conversation that parents are having you know much younger in a child's lifetime you know one one other question i have david is sort of when you think about um, students on campus and you think about what you know trends I'm remembering back in the day there was a book about you know how challenging boarding school environments could be because of the lack of supervision and some of the issues we've discussed around substance use and kids exploring um, sexual relationships much earlier on I'm curious if you see and it was a pretty profound book at that era I'm gonna forget the name of it but I remember when it came out and it was sort of controversial because it named some of the you know the nation's best boarding schools as places where you know, kids were being exposed to things, you know, allegedly beyond their years. I'm curious, you know, on the emotional side, on the academic side, what trends you're seeing uh, with students on these campuses? So it's a, it's a great um, point to make. And it's something I think about a lot, you know, when you're being raised by your peers in a sense at boarding school, is that a healthy thing? Is it a good thing? What's the role of adults? Is the dorm parent who's supposed to be there at night really plugged into you or is he or she married, a dog, two young kids, grading papers, exhausted from coaching all after all afternoon, et cetera. And so I do think about it a lot. Um, in general, I think the behavior is considerably better at boarding school than it was certainly in the 80s um, and probably the 90s. Um, kid, I mean, society is just better. So I don't think you have the rampant drug use that used to go around. I don't think you have as disinterested Faculty, I think the faculty are, are much more on top of what's going on. But having said that, they can't they can't police everything, and they're not there for everyone every time because they just humanly can't be. So I do think that it, it is something I worry about and think about a lot. Um, I think finding the right culture, as I said, of the school and the size of the school can be one mitigating factor. And a lot of the larger schools are trying hard to make themselves smaller, and in fact, not have or if they do have you know, dorms that were built 100 years ago that house 50 to 100, even more kids. How do we break those down and make sure that we feel smaller and we can, we can check in on the kids? Um, so I don't know if I answered it uh, clearly, but I, I do think 
there is certainly behavior that's easier to get involved with at, at boarding school than maybe if you're at home. But on the other hand, if you're in the affluent areas on, on the weekends, there's pl- certainly plenty of day parties uh, where kids are, are, are sorry, mm-hmm. certain plenty of parties that day kids are going to. Um, I will say one great thing that a, uh, that a boy told me who's at a, a smaller boarding school, and I asked him about his ability to make good choices and what's it, how, how's it been basically as a ninth grader. And he said, you know, it's pretty easy to make good choices because the school is set up and talks about making good choices so much that I don't find it that hard because they're telling you basically what to do. Now, he's only in ninth grade, and hopefully, you know, the behavior hasn't begun yet. But I thought that was a really important point that I don't think 30 years ago anybody framed the conversation that these are really good choices. We're setting you up to make them. It was sort of, you're on campus, you're lucky to be here, it's a competitive school, and you'll figure it out. And if you don't, you know, there'll probably be someone else who will come after you. Um, And that still might persist at a few of the big schools or the hyperly competitive schools. But in general, I think people are much more in tune with student wellness. So if you're a parent listening to this and you're contemplating a boarding school, what kinds of tips do you have for them as far as how do they continue to parent without undermining or supplanting what's going on in that boarding school? It's a, it's a challenging question. Um, but I think technology, on the flip side of the positive of technology, is that this can make it a lot easier. So if you think of the old days, you had a boarding school, long hallway with kids playing, maybe hallway hockey in it while there's one payphone and you're trying to call home and there's 10 kids waiting to do it. And it's chaos and you just really, there wasn't a lot of communication necessarily between kids and parents. Now, with, with FaceTiming, it's free, it's available all the time, and I think that parents can certainly be much more involved. If you think about going away at 14 and suddenly being confronted with all these new choices, it's overwhelming and having the ability to check in frequently with your parents, I think is good. So I, I think parents should definitely be involved. Um, I don't know if they should be there all the time so that the children don't actually gain independence and maturity, that they don't start making decisions on their own. And that's the fine line. In our generation, of which I'm a part of with, a, with an 11-year-old, we're very reluctant, obviously, to let kids fail for a variety of reasons. Um, some is hyper-competitiveness, that we don't want them to fail because failure would be a disaster and they're not going to do well in life. Others is because we just don't want them to suffer. So there's a lot of reasons um, why, why things have shifted, but I do think you can sort of stret, walk the fine line. One thing I would say is also when, you're, when parents are looking at schools, I always like to know who's taking care of the kids, just as I mentioned earlier. And I think that begins from the head of school. So who is the head of school? Where is he or she on the weekends? How often are they traveling to Asia? How often are they actually in the dining room having lunch? Do they coach a sport? Do they teach? Do they you know, offer a, a seminar in ethics? What's their real role with the students? Because I think it starts with the head. If the head is really involved with the student's life, I think it's a very positive impact. And certain schools have very engaged heads and others have less engaged heads where they're more of a figurehead for school, raising money and sort of take, have taken on other roles. I think you have so many just really great words of wisdom that are, you know, when you say them, David, it just sounds so um, 
it's, it's sort of like, oh yes, of course that makes sense. But I wouldn't necessarily have anticipated some of your comments, particularly around the staff engagement level, whether it's the house parent or the head of school. So that's really helpful. You know, one question I have is, do you have any stories about managing a student who's been in crisis? Um, obviously with not sharing like particular yep. names or anything, but is, can you think of any examples where you had to sort of navigate through a situation um, with a family member or with a, a student in the middle of a crisis? So there's a few, uh, obviously more than a few, as we started more on the concierge <laughs> side. But I think just to frame it, Arden, um, I always try to approach things uh, with empathy, listening, and try to take a pragmatic approach. And then a very basic quote that stuck with me is that when you're in a hole, stop digging. So sometimes you just have to pause, reflect, and think, okay, how serious is it? How can we help the child? Is it truly a crisis? How are we defining crisis? Is this, I didn't get into the Harvard or is this, I'm having a mental health collapse and could really be causing harm to myself? Um, so that's immediately what I'm thinking. You know, is this a real problem that I have to jump in a car and try to go help? Could a dorm parent help? Or is this something that we just need to work through over time and that there's really no bodily harm or, or longer term harm or, or an immediate harm that's going to happen? I can tell you a couple stories. Um, one was about an expulsion in a boarding school called me. Um, to help and it was about an Asian student who had um, been caught or at least suspected of plagiarizing had gone to the disciplinary committee and it was looking like expulsion was likely so in the interim what did the student do what any 15 year old Asian student scared to death of failure would do is he ran away and so now what you have a kid who's run away to avoid getting sent home and so that was a pretty scary situation. And when do you call police? When do you not call police? Could the person, be, could the student be a danger to themselves? Or is this just a way they're going to get away for a couple hours, clear their mind and come back to campus? So that one ended well, but that certainly was a, uh, an interesting and scary one. And I think it really shows the amount of pressure, especially with Chinese kids, that they're under. Um, a lot of kids are under pressure, but they're under a lot of more pressure, I'd say, in general. And their reactions may be even more severe, which is, I can't get kicked out. I can't let this happen, so I'm going to disappear. Mm. Um, another one was I was at an airport. It wasn't working with a student of mine. And we were in a long line. It was at one of the Christmas breaks. It was a terrible line to check in for international flights. And one girl was just tying it up for hours, literally 30 minutes, hadn't budged. Finally, it was our turn, and we ended up at the... Uh, I haven't been to an airport in so long, what do you call it, the check-in next to her, and she was crying, and I looked over, and finally I said, okay, can I help, or what's the problem? And it turned out she was a, stool, um, a girl from a boarding school, international student, in her visa. She had a visa to go home, but her flight was canceled, and they routed her on a, through another flight that went through Ireland, and she did not have a visa to go through Ireland. And so suddenly now it's eight o'clock on a Friday ahead of the long three week break and she has no way to get home and the faculty member dropped her off and left. So that was certainly, you know, a legitimate crisis. Couldn't check into a hotel alone, was really scared. It was, you know, 6 a.m. or whatever time in her parents' country and I don't think she could even reach them. So fortuitously, I actually knew the teacher who dropped her off, who was the dean of students at the school. I was able to call him. He came right back picked her up, put her in her apartment for the, for the weekend, and they sorted it out on Monday. Um, but, you know, there, there's a lot of different stories. In general, I think most of the people at schools are there because they really care about kids and want to and wanna do the right thing and take care of them. I agree. 
As the mother of a son who did go to boarding school, um, I can honestly say that for him, it was a, an enriching experience. But I know that there were kids who didn't do as well and didn't develop sort of the resilience that they needed to during that experience. Certainly can be hard. So over the course of your career, and I know you've had a long one dealing with students, mental and physical health, what are the things you have learned? What's the one or two tips you would like to leave our audience with today? Um, well, for those who are trying to help, um, I, I would say that just being empathetic, listening and being pragmatic uh, and understanding that there are generalizations, but certainly not everyone is the same and you have to really take the, everything on an individual basis. I think good advice, I can't remember if it was given to me or if I just sort of adopted it, but you just have to remember something basic that this is someone's child and ultimately you're, you're responsible. You're trying to do something that the parents can't do due to distance or relationship or, or for whatever reason. And so you just try to act in a way that where you think, long, what's the best thing long-term for this, for this student? Um, and, and I say that that's how I try to always approach problems that will always come up. Absolutely. Thank you. That was great. Really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us today. Well, thanks. It was great to be here. Thank you for joining David Korb, Arden O'Connor, and Diana Clark for this episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. We broadcast weekly and look forward to another episode next week. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Balance Sheet, a podcast designed to help advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families solve some of their biggest medical, psychiatric, and emotional challenges. Visit beyondthebalancesheet.com to read more about our guests and resources and sign up for our newsletter.